I think I've written maybe half a dozen stories about possible third intifadas. As long as the Palestinian Authority is working against its own people and cracking down on them and using all the money that is being pumped into the security forces to ensure that kids do not go outside of military installations or checkpoints and throw stones, then there's not going to be a third intifada. Welcome to Babel, translating the Middle East, a podcast from the Middle East program at CSIS. Here on Babel, we take you beyond the headlines to take a closer look at what's happening in the Middle East and why it matters. Palestinian-Israeli violence has been rising. Last week, I spoke with a Ramallah-based journalist about the state of Palestinian politics and Palestinians' rising frustration with their government, the Israeli government, and the international community. Later in the episode, I explore the barriers to change in Palestinian politics with my colleagues Will Todman and Danny Sharp. To translate some of what's happening in the Middle East, this is Babel. Dalia Hutuka is an independent journalist focusing on Palestinian and Israeli domestic politics. She's published widely in leading outlets around the world. Dalia, welcome to Babel. Thank you for having me. So Palestine's last presidential elections were 18 years ago. Its last legislative elections were 17 years ago. When we talk about Palestinian politics, in that kind of system, what are we even talking about? Basically, Mahmoud Abbas has been at the helm of uh, the Palestinian Authority, like you said, for many, many years. His health isn't very well, and it seems that he doesn't really relate to what people want or need. I mean, the fact that you, we've been seeing the emergence of so many armed groups and the fact that there are polls that suggest that people support these groups tells you the kind of overwhelming feeling that that's been going on in the West Bank. People no longer believe in the Palestinian Authority. They don't believe in its capacity to do anything because the the whole idea behind the Palestinian Authority was that it was temporary, it was supposed to lead to a Palestinian state but not only has a Palestinian state not been founded, but we have half a million Israeli settlers. And these settlers are rampaging through the West Bank. Nobody's stopping them. I mean, I was just watching a video of Mohammed Shteya, the Palestinian prime minister, trying to talk about the fires that the Israeli settlers set in the West Banks. And this man was yelling, like, right behind him. And he asked him, like, why are you yelling? Can you tell us what's going on? And the guy's like, you know, my house was burned down. You guys, the Palestinian Authority, have so many security forces. So much money is pumped into the security forces, and yet the security forces do nothing to protect Palestinian residents from settlers. So people are angry, and rightly so, and they've been angry for quite a long time. So that's why you're seeing people supporting these groups that aren't really affiliated with the, the traditional factions, because even the traditional factions, they're all under Abbas's wing, so to speak, because he controls the PLO's money, the PLO's budget that's distributed to these factions. They sit there, you know, in these PLO meetings and he just, you know, says whatever he wants to say. And these factions just rubber stamp what he says. For many young Palestinians, Mahmoud Abbas is the only Palestinian president they've ever known. The Palestinian Authority for even larger number of Palestinians is the only 
governance body they've ever lived under. What's their attitude toward politics, toward government, toward their own future? From talking to a lot of younger people, I get a sense, basically, they they don't see a future. A lot of people want to leave the West Bank, more so in Gaza, where the Gaza Strip is under siege, both by Israel and Egypt, and they don't see a future. And they definitely do not see their own aspirations, their own like dreams and visions of the future in this man who's almost 90. And he doesn't speak to them. I don't remember the last time he was on the street talking to people. The younger generation, they'll tell you that this man doesn't mean anything to them and that they're, they're thinking, okay, who's going to be next? And unfortunately, people don't believe it, that there is a proper method or a proper process that will bring about a new president for the Palestinian Authority. So who's going to have a say in succession to Mahmoud Abbas? That's the thing. We don't know. A lot of fingers are being pointed at Hussein al-Sheikh, who's his right-hand man, and he seems to be getting groomed for the position of Palestinian Authority president. I don't know if Mahmoud Abbas has a say in it. I think the Israelis might, the Americans might as well. But he's definitely not the right person for the job as far as Palestinians are concerned. I think the Palestinians want real elections and not for Fatah to take over like it always does. At the same time, you've got Hamas trying to make use of this volatile situation to gain political points like the Hamas bloc won at the elections of Birzeit. And these university elections are usually markers of wider feelings. So the fact that Hamas has won these elections is reflective of how people feel, actually. According to a June survey by the Palestinian Center for Policy and Survey Research, two-thirds of Palestinians polled said Israel won't celebrate its centenary in 25 years. This would probably come as a surprise to most of our listeners. You spent a lot of time talking to Palestinians. How should they understand those poll results? Honestly, it's a reflection of frustration more than anything. Maybe it's wishful thinking. I don't know. But at the end of the day, I think it's a sign of frustration because there is nothing out there that's working out for Palestinians. And quite frankly, I've talked to a lot of Palestinians, obviously. I don't think people want to see the demise of Israelis, but I think they are tired of the structure of the system that's basically killing their kids, taking their homes. And I think they just want to see something, you know, a ray of hope somewhere. And certainly one of the things that many Palestinians must find frustrating is this rising trend of normalization in the Arab world of governments that want to have relations with Israel, the diminished attention that Palestine gets in Arab media. How does that affect Palestinians? Honestly, I think Palestinians know that this is something that the governments themselves are doing and not the actual people. If we go back in time a little bit and we look at the World Cup and how, you know, Palestinian flags were raised everywhere, how people, you know, did not embrace the Israelis that were visiting or the Israeli media. And I'm a firm believer that Arab people are very much interested in what happens in Palestine. And I think the Abraham Accords 
Yes, they paved the way for the normalization of ties between Israel and, you know, the UAE, Bahrain and Morocco and Sudan. And it was hailed as a major regional breakthrough. And and a lot of people want to say, oh, this is proof that Arabs are losing interest in the struggle and whatnot. But honestly, I don't believe that it's true for normal everyday citizens. And these normalization deals in a way, they reflect top-level elite interests in the region. And when you talk to Arabs all around the region itself, you see that people are not interested in the Abraham Accords. They're not interested in, in the fact that their governments are inking these uh, agreements. But at the end of the day, how much could you really say? How far could you be open about saying how you feel, I think you won't be able to get much out of people when they're afraid of the repressive regimes they live in. Do you think that this normalization trend matters for the future of Palestinians? It matters in the fact that it could expand. Definitely. I mean, the Israelis and the Americans have their eyes on Saudi Arabia. For years, most Arab governments conditioned normalization with Israel on the advent of a separate Palestinian state. But the process to create the state has effectively collapsed. And now we've got this extremely far-right government in Israel, and most of them oppose any scenarios in which Palestinian statehood could ever be viable. So I think ordinary Arabs are against the occupation, but I think the Arab governments are intent on obscuring the political priorities of Palestinians and how their own citizens view Palestine as well. And from the perspective of Palestinian self-determination, does increased diplomatic relations between Israel and Arab governments hold that back, advance it, not make any difference at all? How would you judge the impact? I don't think it's a positive thing. I think that normalization takes away from Palestinians. And that used to be their trump card. They would say, well, we will offer you normalization in exchange for you to do this. But once everybody's normalized, I mean, at the end of the day, of course, the Palestinians are going to lose, you know, it's just common sense. But as I said, you know, as long as the ordinary people are opposed to it, which I believe that they are, then I think that there should be more leeway in terms of what the normalization process could or could not do. How would you judge the likelihood of a third intifada? You talked about the growing frustration, the sense of hopelessness. How likely do you think a third intifada is? And what do you expect it would look like and what its results would be? I don't think there's going to be a third intifada. Honestly, since 2014, at least, we've been talking about the fact that there's a third intifada. I think I've written maybe half a dozen stories about possible third intifadas. As long as the Palestinian Authority is working against its own people and cracking down on them and using all the money that is being pumped into the security forces to ensure that kids do not go outside of military installations or checkpoints and throw stones, then there's not going to be a third intifada. What you are going to see is lone wolf attacks, just like the ones that happened yesterday. You could see Janine and other hubs basically being filled with younger men who are armed and who want to do something. I think those are the kinds of things that we expect to see. And it's going to be a tit for tat. 
basically the Israelis, their modus operandi is, okay, we're going to use our military might to crack down on Palestinians. And they still haven't figured it out. They still haven't figured out the fact that that stuff does not work. Because as we saw yesterday in Jenin and the other day, I was stunned because the Israeli army used Apache gunships which we haven't seen being used in the West Bank since 2001 and 2002 during the second intifada. And you're using that in a refugee camp says a lot about the frustration of the Israeli army. Like it's hard to go after these guys when you don't even know who they are. They're not on your radar. They're not affiliated with a traditional faction. So these are the kinds of things that I see happening. And we're just going to be playing this game. It's a whack-a-mole. It's just going to continue. But honestly, I just feel like I'm constantly reliving all these events and all these incidents. And every time I hear something, I'm like, here we go again, because I know what to expect. I know what's going to happen. And I think for a lot of Palestinians, it's the same thing. We've seen these things happen, and we're going to see them happen again. And if Gaza gets sucked into it, it'll be an even more major event and the Egyptians will come in and try to mediate and so on and so forth. And it happens every year and it's so tiring, but it just reflects the sense of frustration that people are living in. It's interesting to me that you don't see Hamas being able to capitalize on frustration with Fatah, frustration with the living conditions. Hamas has advertised itself as being at the forefront of resistance. And as you said, they've won student elections, yet you don't see them as being the power in waiting amidst the failure of the Palestinian Authority. I mean, the Palestinian Authority has done a very good job basically cracking down on Hamas members in the West Bank, from students to faction leaders. So on the one hand, you've got the Palestinian Authority cracking down on them. But also, on the other hand, I mean, Hamas isn't in a position right now to do much because, as you saw just a couple of months ago, when Israel basically attacked Gaza and there was the whole ordeal with the Islamic Jihad, Hamas didn't participate in this because, honestly, they can't afford to right now because Gaza can't take any more destruction, can't take any more death. And with Gaza, so does Hamas. They're unable to recuperate or recover in time. And so I think that's why they opted to kind of take a step back and not really participate in the onslaught that was taking place between Israel and the Islamic Jihad. But in the West Bank, do they try to take over the areas where they feel like Fatah is reeling from people's frustration and whatnot? Yeah, they do. But the crackdown on them is really, really tight. And I don't think they have much room to maneuver in the West Bank. You've talked about the Egyptians. You've talked about the Israelis. You haven't talked much about the Emirates and other countries that are seen to try to influence Palestinian politics. Certainly, the United States has a role. What countries do you think are going to be able to be effective influencing the future shape of Palestinian politics? And what countries do you expect are going to try and fail? Egypt and Jordan have historically been the parties that have had the most say in Palestinian politics, Jordan being the custodian of the Islamic and the Christian holy sites in Jerusalem. 
and the trust that overlooks the Al-Aqsa compound where every year, especially in Ramadan, there's bound to be a flare-up. So there's Jordan on the one hand, and Egypt, obviously, because it's technically controlling the entrance and the exit points of Gaza, but also because they have this love-hate relationship with Hamas, and so they have a say with it. Quite frankly, I don't see how the Emirates can have a say in what goes on. I mean, maybe they want to. I even doubt that. The Qataris? The Qataris do as well, absolutely, yes. Especially with funds and money and their relationship with Hamas and the Brotherhood, definitely. But the Emiratis, I think, are more interested in basically the relationship with Israel. And it's a more a relationship that's based on technology and doing business and whatnot. I don't think that on the political level, the UAE really cares about Palestinians. Will the Saudis, do you think, try to weigh in as they have a more expansive regional policy? I think the Saudis work behind the scenes and they work slowly but surely. But I think there might be changes once the current king passes away and MBS takes over. I don't know how his method is going to look like, but I think we'll definitely be seeing some changes. I think Saudi people are not okay with an outward normalization with the Israelis. I don't see them as being okay with it. And so maybe Saudi is going to tread more carefully in that sense. But I do see that they do play a certain role, but the certain role is more behind the scenes. And it's not always as outward and forward as the role of Jordan and Egypt. And how do you see the U.S. and Europe clearly interested over decades in this problem? Do you see them stepping up and playing a role? Or do you think they're likely to step back, feeling that there's no upside or there's no ability to really steer things in a useful way? I think the European Union will continue to do what it does best, which is two things, issue condemnations and give out money. I mean, I've had so many conversations with diplomats and they keep talking about a two-state solution. And I'm like, what are you talking about? It's over. There is no two-state solution. But like, they just keep talking about the same thing because they don't want to deviate from what they've known for the past 20 years or whatever it is. And the Americans, unfortunately, I mean, a lot of Palestinians had hope for President Biden to at least roll back some of the policies and the changes that the Trump administration had enacted. But unfortunately, he hasn't done any of that. And so I just feel like, honestly, we're in a position where, I mean, maybe I want to call it a quagmire. I don't know. But we're in a position where the Americans are going to continue to do the same thing they've always done. And that's why for Palestinians, when we talk about whether the Democrats or the Republicans are taking over, we say when it comes to foreign policy, there's not really much of a difference. And the Europeans are going to continue to give out money. And then the Israelis come and like basically demolish the schools and the homes and the caravans that they pay for. And then they issue a condemnation. And we just keep going in the cycle. And honestly, that's what I see. I know I sound like really <laughs> frustrated and like I have no hope. But if I feel that way, you should see what ordinary Palestinians say and feel. Is there anything you think we should be hopeful about? That's a very tough question. 
I don't think so, to be honest with you. Honestly, the only thing that makes me hopeful is the people and how resilient Palestinians are and how they always come together. They always have this ability to kind of rise from the ashes. And I know it sounds a bit cliche and cheesy, but there is a lot of resilience there. And whether it's something that Palestinians have to do as opposed to want to do, the result is the same, is that they're trying and they're aiming for a better life, but there are so many powers working against them. Thank you for joining us on Babel. Thank you. I think the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is a common gateway to Middle East studies writ large, at least for American students. It certainly was for me. But the status quo remains essentially the same. And my sense is that that trend goes back even further than my graduation in 2018. Am I correct about that? And if so, what gives? Why is this issue so frozen? There have been moments of tremendous change. After the Gulf War in 1991, We had first the Madrid process, we had an Oslo process. There was a sense we were moving towards self-rule in the Palestinian Authority, and the Palestinian Authority was created as a transition to statehood. That effort really died in the Bush administration. It is partly due to Hamas winning elections. It is partly due to Gaza being split off politically from the West Bank. It's partly due to Israelis being increasingly skeptical that this was a course to follow, and it's partly due to the Palestinian Authority settling in to its patterns of working with the Israelis, working with Palestinians, working with others, but not really working toward self-determination. I think you ended up with a series of interests that ended up freezing a conflict that looked like it was moving forward, took away the urgency from moving forward on the conflict. And we are remarkably in a similar place now to where we were 10 years ago. 10 years before that, people would say, wow, this is really moving. This isn't stable. But it's proved remarkably stable. My first time visiting Palestine was when I was 18, and I did a summer camp in Nablus in the West Bank. And it was a volunteer camp where in the morning we would volunteer in a school with Palestinian refugees, and in the afternoon we did lectures. And these lectures were on refugee return, settlements, administrative detention, which is Israel's arrest of Palestinians without charging them or giving them a trial, water rights. When I look at the situation today, there has been basically no progress on any of those issues. And so I agree for Palestinians, this has been static. But I think the fact that there was this hope in the 90s and early 2000s that things were moving in the right direction, that then has ended. And now there's really a feeling, as Dahlia said, the two-state solution is dead. And so I would say that lack of progress is not the same as actually being static, and that actually now things have shifted in quite an important way, which is now talking about the two-state solution 
is difficult to justify when you look at conditions today. And so from that perspective, things really have shifted. And I think now we're talking about what might a one-state solution look like? Is there a way of settling this conflict in a way that doesn't end up with a two-class system where Palestinians are treated extremely differently to Israelis? I think the Israelis and many in the international community have concluded that maybe this conflict doesn't need to be solved. You know, there was a sense of urgency that I used to sense that has sort of gone away. Israelis have assimilated the idea that you don't ever really have to resolve this. And to me, that sort of stands in contrast to the poll that I mentioned in the conversation with Dahlia, that two thirds of Palestinians think that Israel won't exist in 25 years. That seems to me to be tremendously wishful thinking, but also a sense that neither side sees a real necessity to move from wishful thinking to some sort of durable compromise because neither side has any confidence that a compromise will solve the problem. What I see emerging is a growing consensus. The problem is simply insoluble. And I completely agree, John. And I think on one level, things haven't changed for Palestinians. Maybe on the other side, there has been this important shift for Israelis where the general Israeli perhaps feels more secure now than they did a few decades ago. They have found ways to largely reduce some of the greatest security concerns. And so this is less of a pressing issue. But the Israelis also feel that cracking down on security, being tougher, giving fewer compromises to the Palestinians has brought Israelis more security and not less. And there's a whole generation of Israelis who've grown up and they've said greater separation works, tighter security works. That's the way forward, as opposed to Israelis who said this is untenable. And as we remember from the conversation we had with Tamar Herman in the fall, Israelis are growing more comfortable saying we are right wing. That's the way to secure our future. And fewer Israelis are saying that unless we compromise with the Palestinians, we're all sunk. How would each of you evaluate that idea that the status quo is tenable, that it can be maintained indefinitely? Because maybe I'm just naive, but I can think of any number of things that might change and turn a stable status quo into crisis pretty quickly. It is very hard to say how tenable it is. If you look at the really broad shifts, then I think generally they are moving towards greater stability. We're seeing normalization with the region. Regional actors do not have perhaps the same level of leverage in terms of getting concessions from the Israelis as they might have once had. At the same time, when you have so much disillusionment with the political system, it's very, very hard to predict what that looks like in the West Bank going forward. All of the sort of tinder is there. Israelis talk increasingly about the tension between being a democratic state and a Jewish state. And it seems to me that that's where at some point you run out of road, that there's a problem with democratic states with large numbers of people with no hope for citizenship who have different kinds of life chances based on their birth origin. Israel, demographically, has a challenge that 
both the Arab population and the ultra-Orthodox population are growing more quickly than the secular Jewish population, which arguably was at the forefront of the state for 75 years. None of those are acute, but it feels to me like the course that Israel is on is a course that will have a moment of reckoning at some point in the future. I think the course that Palestinians have been on for quite some time have created a moment of reckoning. And you could look at what Dalia Khotuka said and say that the, that's led to a complete dead end. And so that's what I'd like to drill in on as we finish. Looking specifically at the Palestinian side, I can't seem to make sense of this contradiction that Dahlia raised. If Palestinians are so united in their distaste for Abu Mazen, why are Palestinian politics so frustrating? Why has there been no substantial change or progress? Because the institutions are weak, because a combination of internal and external forces want to keep those institutions weak. One of the things she mentioned briefly was was the rise of some of these ad hoc groups, the, the Lions then and others. I think it's a sign probably of desperation and frustration. But as we've seen throughout the rest of the Arab world and, and Iran, these groups that come out of desperation can't really create change. It requires some form of organization. The Israelis don't want organization. The Palestinian Authority doesn't want organization. They infiltrate, they frustrate these groups. Are we moving toward a period of just free-flowing desperation? And what does that look like? And is that sustainable? I don't know. I mean, there certainly is an instinct for a lot of, of rulers in the region to just want Palestinians to emigrate. There are Jews who would like Palestinians to emigrate. There are Palestinians who would like other Palestinians to emigrate. And then you sort of have a rump state that's left there. Arguably, that's been the policy of the U.S. and Cuba since 1961. And I know people who lived in Cuba in the 50s, and they say the remarkable thing about going back to Havana is it's not more crowded. It's the only third world city that hasn't grown. So is that part of the future? I don't know. But it certainly feels like the succession after Abu Mazen is imminent. It will have a profound impact. And it's unclear who's going to be able to shape it and whether as people shape it, it's going to have the outcomes that they're hoping for. I think the other piece is what Palestinian leader can articulate a vision for Palestinians, for Palestine, that will unite the Palestinian people at this stage? The issues I talked about at the start of this conversation, none of those have serious prospects of being solved anytime soon. There are more settlements now than there were 20 years ago. Refugee return is not about to happen. How can you find a new leader who can articulate a better future for Palestinians that will realistically have to involve walking back a lot of these long-held aims for Palestinians. I think that is a almost impossible job, and I think that's probably why we haven't seen someone emerge as a real alternative to Abbas at this stage. And it's a hard task to be a leader of the Palestinian community. I mean, you have to, on the one hand, convince 
the Palestinian population that you're extracting the maximum amount while also convincing Palestinians to walk back some of their demands. And I think striking that balance and winning the confidence of Israelis and others that this actually is going to lead to a solution. That That's where the, the difficulty is. But Israelis have so many opportunities to frustrate a new Palestinian leader and undermine a new Palestinian leader. I often thought during the Bush administration that the best thing that the Israelis and the Americans could do to empower Abu Mazen was to let him win a few battles against the U.S. and the Israelis, give him credibility for hanging tough and extracting things. But he was never really able to turn that corner. Overwhelming number of Palestinians believe they're worse off rather than better off. And how you get to a point where a Palestinian leader can say, no, negotiations will make things better is as much a responsibility for Americans and Israelis as it is for Palestinians. And I don't know who that leader is going to be. And I don't know how that leader is going to come to power when Mahmoud Abbas leaves the scene. Maybe if we have a few more conversations, we'll be able to solve it. But in the meantime, John, Will, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Danny. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Babbel. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find more analysis on this topic linked in the show notes on the CSIS website, and you can find us on Twitter at CSIS Mideast. Thank you.